Oh, well, praise the Lord. What a lovely, beautiful song. Now I'm going to pass the time to Pastor Caroline. She's going to come and bring us God's Word today. Well, good morning, everyone. The book of uh, Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, probably seems like an unlikely place for us to begin this series of messages which are predominantly going to be from the book of Revelation, which is, of course, the very last book of the Bible. But that is exactly where we're going today. I've got a handwritten notation just above the title of the book of Revelation in my Bible, and it reads like this. To understand the end of all things, one must understand the beginning of all things. Alpha and Omega are linked with an unbroken chain. Now, I wish I'd written down who that quote came from or where I got it from. Could have been a lecture, could have been a sermon, could have been a book that I was reading. But I love that quote. It reminds me that the Bible comes to us as a collection of inspired writings that tell a collective story. And whilst we can learn a great deal from studying in depth individual passages or even entire books of the Bible, there is this big picture that plays out across the entire Bible. And themes can be traced from beginning to end, just like that unbroken chain that I just mentioned. And it fascinates me that even while placing two untainted people in the pristine garden called Eden, God could see before him the great multitude who would gather before his throne and he could see that chain unbroken that would link them together. Many great biblical themes have their genesis in this first book of the Bible and most of them find their fulfilment in Christ and then reach a climax in Revelation. And in these weeks of the year that remain before we head towards Christmas, can you believe that we're heading that way already? We're going to explore just one of those themes as it approaches its climax in Revelation with the wedding feast of the Lamb. Before we get there, though, before we jump straight to Omega, as it were, I think we would do well to take a walk along that chain, even if only briefly, from Alpha to Omega, from Genesis, following this imagery right through as it's developed in the Old Testament and then reimagined in the New Testament with the coming of Christ. So, To those of you who like to have your Bibles open and work your way through the passage as we we work our way through it uh, here, good luck with that this week because we're going to move pretty quickly and we're going to be jumping around quite a bit so you may have some trouble keeping up this morning. The story I want to tell you today is a love story. And it's not just any love story, it's the greatest love story that has ever been told. It is the story of a love that has endured against all odds. And the creation scene is where God paints for us his view of human marriage. He creates the woman from a bone taken from the man and the man describes her as bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then in Genesis 2.24, he makes this statement. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. 
So in marriage, the two are reunited into one flesh and that bond is exclusive and it is lifelong. And what begins in Genesis as purely a description of human marriage relationships becomes the basis for a metaphor which is at the heart of this love story, portraying Israel's relationship with God. And it is a metaphor that will persist throughout the Old Testament. Initially, this notion of God as the husband of his people is implied in the exclusive nature of the covenant that he enters into with them. And then subsequently in descriptions of Israel's harlotry and God's jealousy. And that's carried through the Pentateuch and then on into the historical books of the Bible. Even as far back as Exodus, the people are warned of God's desire for exclusivity in his relationship with them. Exodus 34, 14, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. And they're warned not to enter into any other relationship with people in the land that God would lead them to. Exodus 34, 15, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. But then by the time we reach Deuteronomy, Israel's abandonment of her rightful husband and her violation of the bond that unites them is imminent and it will provoke her husband's jealousy. Deuteronomy 31, 16. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your fathers and these people will soon prostitute themselves to foreign gods in the land that they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I have made with them. And what is God's reaction to this? Deuteronomy 32, 21 says, They made me jealous by what is no God, and they angered me with their worthless idols. And so this relationship, which is implied in the Pentateuch and in the historical books of the Bible, further develops and becomes really explicit as we enter the prophets. Isaiah puts it simply like this, Isaiah 54, 5, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. But sadly, by far the most pervasive image in all of the prophets concerning this relationship is that of Israel's unfaithfulness in it. In Jeremiah, the Lord recalls his relationship with Israel. Jeremiah 2.2. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. And then we compare these words with the words of the prophet Isaiah. See how the, unfaith how the faithful city 
has become a harlot, Isaiah 1, 21. And if that harlot metaphor wasn't graphic enough, Jeremiah teases out and exposes the depths of Israel's unfaithfulness in her relationship with God by comparing her to a wild donkey that's on heat, nose in the air, sniffing the wind, no one able to restrain her from her cravings. Jeremiah 2, 23 to 24. And then in Ezekiel chapter 23, there's a graphic description describing the deeds of two adulterous sisters and they represent the northern city of Samaria and the southern city of Jerusalem. In both Isaiah and Jeremiah, a certificate of divorce is even mentioned. And of course, who could overlook the prophet Hosea? called not only to speak to the people about their unfaithfulness to God, but to be for them a living symbol of God's love for adulterous Israel by taking and loving as his own wife an adulterous woman. Ezekiel, speaking among the exiles in Babylon, presents a very concise summary of their part in this relationship. Ezekiel 16, 32 to 33 says, you adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for illicit favors. Very few earthly husbands could survive that type of betrayal but this is not just any love story. And our God is not bound by human emotions and actions. And so within the prophets, we find not only these oracles of judgment, but also promises of hope. Hosea speaks of God's efforts to win back Israel's first love. Hosea 2.14, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. And then, having won over her heart, she will show signs of true repentance, being restored to her husband. And Hosea 2.16 says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband. You will no longer call me my master. Isaiah says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you, Isaiah 62, 5. Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant, not like the one Israel broke, although the Lord was her husband, but this is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so from the depths of this picture of unrequited love, the Old Testament anticipates for us the restoration of the marriage of God to his people. And when the divine husband arrives for his people, it is John the Baptist who is first to recognise him. He says this, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. 
the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. He must increase and I must decrease. That's John 3, 29 to 30. And Jesus confirms the witness of John when he responds to questions about why his own disciples did not fast by saying, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And he goes on to indicate that while they celebrate now, the wedding will be delayed when he's taken away from them. He speaks to the people in parables and he tells them of Israel's rejection of the wedding invitation and the extension of that invitation to all the nations. And he warns them that even those who do accept the wedding invitation must wear the appropriate wedding garments. And as we move through this series, we will from time to time be drawing on some of these parables as we tease out the contents of these various letters to the seven churches. So I'm not going to dwell on them now, but suffice to say, the bridegroom has come and the invitation has been extended. And now we wait for his return and for the time when we will take our place in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. In the Hebrew culture of Jesus' time, marriage consisted of two parts. There was the betrothal and the wedding itself, much like we have an engagement and then usually sometime later a wedding. However, in the Hebrew culture, being betrothed to another did not simply mean that you intended at some later date further down the track to get married. The betrothal was legally binding and you couldn't simply end that betrothal and, and move on. The agreement could only be terminated um, with a divorce and that would generally only happen on the grounds of adultery or, or something equally serious. That betrothal process began with the selection of the bride and often, but not always, the groom's father would make the arrangements. And once the agreement had been reached, the future bride and groom would meet, usually at the home of the bride and her parents. And here the groom would bring along the pre-negotiated bride price, the ketubah, which was like a betrothal contract, which detailed all the promises that the groom was making to his bride and the terms of their marriage. And then after presenting his bride with a gift, the betrothal would be sealed with the drinking of wine. And the groom would then depart, leaving the bride with her family, while he returned to the home of his parents, often for a year or more, to make the necessary preparations. And while the groom made ready their living quarters, the bride prepared the household items that she would need to take with her. She prepared her wedding garments and she prepared herself, literally being ready, looking her best, keeping herself pure, for at any moment the husband might return to take her back to the father's house. She did not know the day of his return, but she needed to ensure that whenever it was, she would be ready for it. Believers are now in that period of waiting. Christ came from heaven to earth to the home of his bride 
and he has made his proposal. He's returned to the father's house and so we wait. We do not know the day of his return, but we too must be ready for it so that we can take our place in that new Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ. Every believer will be part of the new Jerusalem. There we'll join with the saints of the Old Testament, whom Hebrews 11 tells us died without having seen the promises and who waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We'll join the early church from whom Jesus departed to prepare a place. We'll join the believing Jews mentioned in Revelation 7 and the saints of tribulation mentioned in Revelation chapter 6. And collectively, we will be a sight to behold. Towards the end of the visions in the book of Revelation, one of the angels says to John, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And John is carried away to a mountain where he's shown the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven and she is dazzling. She's radiant with the glory of God and the description of her is mind-blowing. You can have a look for yourself and read it in chapter 21 of Revelation. And that is what all believers have to look forward to. But until then, we must wait. We wait, we remain faithful, we make our preparations and we keep watch. Now, if you've ever been parted from a loved one from an extended period of time, and I'm sure that with all that's taken place in the last couple of years, many of you have been in that situation, you'll know how treasured a letter or an email or a text message, any form of communication is. And as a child, I was very close to my grandmother. When we emigrated to Australia, um, I used to write her a letter once a week as a child and we would post it to her and I continued that tradition on into my adult life. These were, as my younger children call it, back in the olden days, the days before there were computers, the days before there were mobile phones and text messages and the days even when uh, making an international phone call from your landline at home was so astronomically expensive that it was reserved only for Christmas Day and birthdays. Writing to her each weekend was my practice. And I can remember for many, many years as I would drive to work each Monday morning, about halfway there, there was a certain post box that I would stop at to post that letter. And uh, I can remember even after her death, the first week after her death, I automatically drove to that post box. I automatically stopped, got out of the car and then realised I had no letter in my hand to post because she wasn't there anymore. And even to this day, I can't drive past that mailbox without thinking of her. And after her death, her sister in the UK contacted me and they'd been cleaning out the house, her, her little flat for, for sale. And she'd found within the big old armchair that she used to spend her days sitting in, looking out the window towards the sea, pushed down between every cushion. It was just stuffed with letters, 
that I had posted to her that she would sit and read and reread and even read to whoever used to come to the house. I know that there were many personal carers who uh, I'm sure were bored to death listening to the mundane details of my young children's lives. But that is what we do with the words of those that we love and from whom we are separated. We treasure them. We pour over them. We read and reread them, seeking to glean anything that we can from them. Some of the most treasured letters have been penned during various world wars, penned in the trenches of the battlefields. One such letter came from a soldier named Albert to his wife, Edith. Many of these letters have been preserved and they're in museums all over the world. Albert penned his letter on a scrap piece of paper just before what he calls going over the top, which I presume means out of the trenches and onto the battlefield. In it, he affirms his great love for Edith and what he calls their chicks, his six children at home with her. He speaks to her about what lies ahead for her, knowing that he's almost certainly going to die once he leaves the trenches. He gives her some practical advice for the future and then he bids her a heartfelt farewell, assuring her that his last thoughts will be of her. And Edith apparently treasured those last words from her husband, rereading them until the day she died, just short of 40 years later. And I'm sure that there will be many of you listening this morning who have a special greeting card or a letter tucked away somewhere from a loved one for, from whom you are separated, either by distance or by death. And I have no doubt that you treasure those words of theirs. The last words of Jesus are recorded for us, not in the Gospels, but in this very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Physically, these words were recorded by John during his time in exile on the island of Patmos for his faith in Christ. There he heard first a voice and then he saw a vision and the voice directed him to write on a scroll the visions that he was to see and to send it to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Those churches were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. They weren't the only churches in Asia Minor at the time. There were others. But these seven, it seems, were located, if you follow them in the order that they're presented in the book of Revelation, they're roughly circular. It's sort of a flattened circular shape. But they appeared to be located on a trade route that attracted people from all over the province. So perhaps the seven served as a natural point of dissemination after the, the revelation had been received and digested by them. Ephesus was the most important city in the region, but of the others, many of them were not even amongst the best known churches in the region. And yet they were chosen by the Lord. The number seven, of course, is 
very significant in the Bible. It symbolises completeness. So these seven churches also most likely have a symbolic purpose, representing the church universal, and therefore every church has something to glean from reading these letters to these seven churches, and every church will see parts of themselves within these letters. And I have no doubt that we'll also encounter ourselves as we read through these letters together. You might like to turn in your Bibles now to Revelation chapter 1 as we explore briefly this first vision of John which introduces these letters to the seven churches. Verse 12, John sees someone like a son of man among seven gold lampstands. And his description of this figure among the lampstands is mind-blowing. His long robe reaching down to his feet marks him out as a person of distinction, perhaps a priest, but maybe not necessarily so. His gold belt, his white hair, his eyes like flames, and his feet like glowing bronze, they're all reminiscent of the visions of Daniel. And his voice like the sound of rushing water, reminiscent of the voice of God in Ezekiel 43. In his right hand, he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, a weapon of offence which would be used as an instrument of judgment. His face, John tells us, was shining like the sun in all its brightness. And John is understandably overwhelmed. He falls to the ground. Like he's like a dead man. And then the one like the son of man speaks, telling him not to be afraid and introducing himself like this. I am the first and the last. The living one who was dead but is alive forevermore, who holds the keys to death and Hades. John is, of course, seeing none other than Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus then proceeds to explain the vision that John has just witnessed. The seven golden lampstands that Jesus stood among are the seven churches. And the seven stars in his right hand are the angels of the seven churches. And this is a vision of great intimacy, the bridegroom having departed the earth, yet still here he is right among the churches and in his right hand, the hand that denotes favour and protection, he holds what are called the angels of these churches. And here we encounter our first significant problem of interpretation within this book of so many symbols. Who are these angels of the churches? There has been no end of scholarly energy put into identifying who the angels of the churches are. There remains no consensus. Some view them as kind of guardian angels of the churches. The biggest problem with that view is that it's difficult to imagine the content of some of the letters, which includes rebuke, being directed towards angels. The word angel literally means messenger. So some see these angels as messengers who help the church to understand the heart of God. 
Still others have sought to apply this to those with responsibility in the church, the leaders or the elders. But this also is problematic since the content of the letters is clearly directed to the entire congregation. Still others see these as representatives of the churches, again, possibly the elders, who are nominated to travel back and forth to John, who was in exile on the island of Patmos, perhaps to take care of his needs, perhaps to receive teaching from him and, and to send news of the churches in Asia Minor. Still others see these angels as the spirit of the churches who stand for and symbolise the churches themselves. There are difficulties with all of the views and the short answer is that we just don't know. And I think perhaps we need to be okay with that. For those who lived before the days of the Messiah, the various ceremonies of the law and the prophets, the communications of the prophets gave them something of the concept of atonement and of a saviour. But the full meaning and the full details would not be known precisely until the Messiah himself came. And perhaps so it is with parts of Revelation uh, for us. What we do know without doubt is that the churches here are called the lampstands. Now lampstands bear the light. They are not themselves the light. That light is the truth of the gospel as it's revealed in Christ. That's the light that God wants the whole world to see from these lampstands. And we know that the risen Christ is pictured right there, right in the midst of his congregations. And we know that his favour and protection is extended towards them. In the absence of the physical presence of the bridegroom, they are far from abandoned and neither are we. Like them, we wait for the bridegroom's return. Like them, we must ready ourselves for it. In their waiting, he wrote to these seven churches and with the exception of a small section at the end of Revelation in which he assures us that he is coming again soon, these are the last recorded words that we have of Jesus. And so they are precious to us and we should treasure them. Some years ago, I read a book which challenged me to see beyond just the rebuke that was contained in some of these letters and to see them in the context of this greater love story that we've walked right through the Bible this morning. The book is called Seven Love Letters uh, from Jesus. It's by Rebecca Hayford Bower. And it is my prayer that as we move through this series together, you will encounter the great love of Jesus for his church within each of these seven letters and will be challenge to consider your own response to that love as we wait for the bridegroom to return. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for pursuing your people throughout history, even when they have at times rejected your love. Yours is a love that even this metaphor of human marriage can never fully explain.
We thank you that in our time of waiting for your return, you have not abandoned us because John saw you right there among the lampstands. We want to wait well. Teach us what it means to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul and with all our mind and with all of our strength as we wait for your return. Amen. Well, may you love wholeheartedly. May you live peacefully. And may you be God's people in the world. Amen. We're going to sing our closing song, Cornerstone, together. Don't forget to grab something to eat or drink um, and log into Zoom as soon as you can after the end of the service uh, for a chance to chat and to catch up with one another at our virtual morning tea. I'll see you there.
shall come with trumpet sound Oh may I then in him be found Dressed in his righteousness alone Faultless stand before the throne Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love through the storm.